0: Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with performance and how to improve the human experience. Twice a week, I explore the latest science, technology, and tactics with experts in various fields of human optimization. I'm your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Superhumans! Boomer Anderson, we are back with another episode of the... Decoding Superhuman Podcast. Occasionally at conferences, I get to speak to very smart people. Actually, at every conference, I get to speak to very smart people. And as you know, smart people and smart conversations are things that just absolutely light me up. And our guest today is one of those people. I met him at the Biohacking Latvia conference and immediately we got along. We talked about Bitcoin chrononutrition, which is what we get into today, and so many other different topics. But our guest today is Greg Potter. And Greg Potter's PhD work at the University of Leeds on sleep, diet, and metabolic health was featured by the likes of BBC World Science, The Washington Post, and Reuters. Today, I wanted to have him come on the show and talk specifically about chrononutrition because there's a lot out there on fasting, time-restricted eating, and For my own edification, I wanted to set the record straight. And Greg surely did not disappoint. We talk about time-restricted eating versus fasting. We get into optimal meal times, whether or not early time-restricted feeding is a more useful tool than really skipping breakfast. And finally, I get to pick his brain a little bit on my own diet and how to construct the proper diet for somebody who works out in the middle of the day, but also is reaching for new heights always in cognitive function. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Greg. That's G-R-E-G. Enjoy my episode with the fabulous Greg Potter. Dr. Potter, Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Boomer. Good to speak to you as always.
0: Hey, it's, um, you know, we should be calling you tidy spokesperson today, but uh, (laughs) I think that's an inside joke between the two of us that anyone listening to this right now may not get. Um, But, you know, you and I have had the pleasure of interacting quite a bit in Latvia of all places at the Biohacking Latvia conference. And I got to say, I learned a lot from you that weekend. So thank you for everything you've taught me so far.
1: Oh, pleasure.
0: So today we're going to delve into the world of chrononutrition. And before I do that, there's something that I may have wrongly said at the Biohacking Latvia conference that uh, I would like to just kind of clarify a little bit. So when, when you're talking about population data and looking to determine morning people versus night people... What is the issue with quoting percentages? Because this is something I would like to understand. There's numerous books out there that say, you know, 30% of people out there are in warning people or 40 or whatever the number is. What's the problem with that?
1: Yeah, and this is a classic case of me getting on your case about semantics because I'm a pedant. So I apologize for that.
0: (laughs) No (laughs) need to apologize.
1: (laughs) My point was that if you plot the distribution of chronotypes of people of a given age, then that might be useful when you're analysing your data in a research setting, for instance. But the issue is that some people assume that the resulting distribution reflects some sort of healthy range for people of those demographics. And as an analogy, making that assumption is much like taking the body mass indices, which is a measure of how heavy somebody is relative to how tall they are, of the same people, and then splitting them into three groups, one underweight, one intermediate, and one overweight, even though we know that that would probably be misguided, given that the majority of people in many Western countries now are overweight or obese. So if you want to get a better idea of your true chronotype and Chronotype and morningness, eveningness, which you were referring to, the idea of somebody being a morning lark or a night owl, are related. They're somewhat distinct, but for the sake of this conversation, we can just treat them as the same thing. If you want to get a better idea of your chronotype, you could go camping with some friends of a similar age. And if you do that, then you'll get a sense after a few days of where your biological timing sits relative to your peers. And the nice thing is that as you do that, it will also be good for you and good fun. So if you want to give that a go, you could go camping for at least two nights in a place which is far from artificial light. And then while you're camping, just expose yourself to natural light. So sunlight, moonlight, starlight and firelight and avoid using any devices, even though that seems like it's impossible in 2019. And during this time, you'd skip all stimulants, including caffeine and alcohol and you wouldn't wake up to artificial alarms and then after that period of time you'd probably find that whereas at the start there was a big discrepancy between the people who went to bed earliest and latest after a few days you'd all start to more tightly synchronize with your environment but you would still find that the people who were earliest at the start and latest at the start remained at the respective ends of that distribution It's just that it it would narrow substantially. So my point really was that in the modern developed world, it's common to have this great variation in biological timing, but that's not necessarily driven by somebody's genetics. Much of the time, it's it's a product of things such as artificial light at night, spending insufficient time outdoors during the day, Consumption of stimulants and social pressures and relationships that shift our timing.
0: So, just as an aside before we get into this whole world of biological and circadian rhythms, you live in London. Where does mm. one go camping outside of London?
1: <laughs> well, you don't go camping inside of London.
0: <laughs> that, that's true. I think got your, <laughs> you certainly go, you certainly have an artificial light issue if you go to Piccadilly Circus. Not that. Many people go there.
1: No kidding. And when I first moved to London, I really struggled with it because I didn't have blackout blinds. Mm -hmm. And I just had artificial light streaming in through my window at night. And my sleep was terrible as a result of that. It really fragmented a lot and it interfered with my productivity and my mood a lot. And thank God for blackout blinds is all I'm saying. But if you wanted to go camping somewhere near London, then you'd probably have to go at least 30 or 40 miles or so. And there are probably a bunch of options out towards places like Oxford, where you could satisfy that need if you wanted to. But the problem is that something like 80% of the planet's land is now exposed to artificial light at night. So in reality, it's actually very difficult to truly escape the industrialized world. Wow.
0: All right. So let's go into clocks, circadian clocks, and all these fun things. What specifically are biological clocks or circadian clocks? And please do correct my vocabulary if I'm using the uh, wrong terms here. And what are some of the examples? I know we've covered this somewhat before on the podcast, but I want to lay some foundations for people before we go a little bit deeper.
1: Sure. So Biological clocks are just structures in our bodies that produce rhythmic or oscillating changes in various different outputs. As an example of that, you might look at somebody's core body temperature, or you might look at the distinction between sleeping and waking, or physical activity and inactivity. And these produce these rhythms, and these rhythms persist in the absence of external cues, such as the light-dark cycle, feeding-fasting cycles, and changes in temperature. So to truly identify actual biological rhythms that result from these biological clocks, you need to take somebody and put them into so-called temporal isolation, which means isolating them from time cues. And one way to do that would be to go and live in a cave, for instance. And you'd find that these changes in things like Sleeping and waking and core cool body temperature persist even when somebody is in a cave for several days without food and without knowledge of time of day and without exposure to the light dark cycle. And the point is that these rhythms aren't precisely 24 hours. So if you look at circadian rhythms, which are roughly 24 hours, true to their name, then in that type of temporal isolation, somebody's circadian system ticks at a pace which is slightly slower than 24 hours. So most people's intrinsic circadian rhythms are something like 24 hours and 12 minutes or 24 hours and 15 minutes. And for that reason, they need to be reset or resynchronized each day with the natural world. And the primary way by which they're reset each day is through the light-dark cycle. So as we touched on earlier, We now live in these environments that are polluted with artificial light at night. During the daytime, we spend most of our time indoors. We probably spend something like 88% of our lives indoors in countries such as the Netherlands and the UK and America. And also, it's not just the light-dark cycle that resets these rhythms each day. So whereas the light-dark cycle is the most important time cue for the master clock in our brains which is at the top of the hierarchy of the circadian system our patterns of eating and fasting seem to be the most important time cue for many of the clocks elsewhere in our bodies and these are named peripheral clocks and again if we think about our industrialized environment then the issue is that we have round the clock food access and access to food is uncoupled from physical activity now you can cool dominoes and have a pizza brought to you in half an hour without moving anything other than your arm and your jaw so with that in mind what we need to try and do is better recapitulate the environments of our ancestors in our modern environments in order to more tightly synchronize our circadian systems with the natural world and what will likely happen if we do that, is we'll experience an array of health benefits because we now know, based on a variety of different types of research, that disruption to the circadian system associates with a variety of negative health consequences. And this brings up an important point, which is that like most things in biology, we have circadian rhythms and these are driven by the circadian system because it's a fitness characteristic. It actually helps us pass on our genes. And there have been experiments in other animals in which the researchers have genetically manipulated the other animals. That sounds quite nefarious, but you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. And by doing so, their intrinsic rhythms or the length of their biological days differs more dramatically from 24 hours than wild type animals, animals that haven't been tampered with. And what you find is that those genetically manipulated animals have lower reproductive success. And if you actually change the light-dark cycle such that the light-dark cycle moves from 24 hours closer to the period of that animal's body clock, then the genetic mutants actually then become more reproductively successful in some species. So accurate timekeeping having a body clock which tightly synchronizes with the 24-hour world seems to actually be important from a Darwinian perspective too. So practically speaking, what this means for us is that we need to pay close attention to our patterns of light exposure and time in darkness too. We need to eat at the correct times and fast at the correct times and then be aware of other stimuli that can disrupt our circadian rhythms, which are things such as certain stimulants and perhaps also a few other factors too all
0: right so this is a lot to take in but also right now you mentioned a couple of things about eating at the correct times fasting at the correct times how aside from going camping in the wild and determining sort of your actual rhythm Mm. how do we determine i guess this is called the biological day how do you determine that
1: yeah. So, biological daytime, in its truest sense, is
0: and quite. Difficult. Is it is it different than chronotype? I guess is a sure. basic question for me.
1: Yeah, it's it's related to chronotype. So, chronotype, in its truest sense, is the timing of somebody's circadian system relative to some fixed time point in the outside world. So, for example. You could look at the time at which somebody's cool body temperature, remembering that cool body temperature is primarily a product of the circadian system. You look at the timing of that relative to dawn in the morning, or you could look at the timing of what's called dim light melatonin onset, and I'll come back to that, relative to dusk at night. And the biological daytime is when melatonin is very low. So With that said, I just need to quickly explain uh, the basics of how the circadian system is regulated. So we have these photoreceptors in our eyes that detect light exposure. And then this information about light exposure is recorded by these specialized cells. And it's sent directly back to a structure called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the master clock in the brain that I mentioned earlier, which is at the top of this circadian system hierarchy. And then that structure sends this information back to a a small gland called the pineal gland. And that gland synthesizes melatonin, which is a hormone, during darkness. So in this way, melatonin is an internal time cue. It's an internal darkness signal. So when melatonin is high, that's the biological nighttime because melatonin is passing through our bloodstreams. And it's acting on two receptors in humans, to tell the relevant tissues to engage in their appropriate nighttime activities. So, with all that said, chronotype and the timing of the biological daytime are absolutely related to each other. And we can't measure melatonin practically in the wild on an ongoing basis. So with that said, is is there a heuristic that people can use to understand when their biological daytime is likely to be occurring? I think there is. So in most people, what you find is that there's a sharp increase in melatonin synthesis about two hours before their habitual bedtime. So if you go to bed at 10pm, then the start of your biological nighttime is typically around 8pm. And if you don't wake up to an alarm, then the end of your biological night time, or the time at which melatonin falls substantially such that it's practically ne- negligible is commonly around the time that you'll naturally wake up and that has implications as we'll get to for the best times at which to eat and also it has implications for people who want to shift the timing of their body's clocks because something to understand is that when we're exposed to light exposure determines the direction in which the circadian system has shifted, such that if we go outside and experience lots of bright blue light early in our biological daytime, so shortly after waking, we will tend to anchor our circadian systems earlier in the day and we can shift them earlier. So if you're somebody who goes to bed very late and you'd like to go to bed a bit earlier so you can get more sleep before waking up to your alarm, then... That has implications because if you spend 30 minutes plus outside shortly after waking in daylight, then you can start to pull your circadian rhythm earlier in the day and that will help you go to bed, late, bed earlier. And likewise, if you're somebody, perhaps you're very elderly and you're finding that you're going to bed very early and waking up very early, but you'd like to go to bed later and wake up later, then you can reduce your light exposure in the morning. So for example, if you're outside, you could wear sunglasses. And then at night, you could actively increase your exposure to bright blue light. So perhaps that would be leaving the lights on inside or going for a walk in the evening if it's the summer. And that will help shift your clock later and thereby avoid waking up so early and going
0: to bed so early too. So you touched on this, but I wanna just make sure I'm crystal clear here the biological day so to speak it does change over the course of your life like yeah. as you get older do you, i mean does it move earlier is that a natural occurrence for people that
1: is absolutely a natural occurrence so what we typically see is that when somebody is first born their circadian system is relatively disorganized and as a result there's not consolidated bouts of wakefulness and sleep babies just sleep pretty much around the clock and somewhat sporadic but then as they develop their sleep becomes more consolidated and children go to bed early and wake up early naturally and then as they develop until the end of puberty the timing of their body's clocks shifts later such that for most people timing is latest at around the end of adolescence which is normally about 19 and a half for women and men keep delaying until they're about 21 or so and because men have delayed for longer on average they're slightly later chronotypes than women for most of adulthood but that sex difference between men and women tends to disappear by about 50 years of age which coincides with the menopause incidentally and then What we sometimes see is that people over the age of 60 or so are actually even earlier chronotypes than children are today.
0: Great. Okay. Okay. So now I want to transition a little bit into how this all impacts nutrition. Because if I were, let's say, a high performer or looking to perform at my absolute best, there's implications to biological day on nutrition. Is this the right time to introduce the idea of time-restricted feeding or, I guess, feeding windows?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Why not?
0: Okay, so let's dive a little bit into this. So the idea of of chrononutrition and sort of eating towards your your biological day, if you will, um, what does that exactly mean and how can we use this information to help us eat at more optimal times?
1: So I think of chrononutrition as being the reciprocal relationship between the circadian system and nutrition. So in principle, an understanding of the circadian system has implications for the best time at which to eat, as we'll get to. But also, the foods that we consume, as I mentioned, in turn influence the timing of the circadian system. So there's this inextricable link between the two of them and the concept of time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding which is the term that's typically used when scientists refer to studies of other animals non-human animals is that the period in which calories are consumed is restricted to 12 hours or less each day and this has risen in popularity in recent years and there's been some really interesting science that's come out showing that applied correctly it seems to be beneficial, especially if it's confined to the early parts of the biological daytime. So I don't know if you want to use that as a springboard for an additional discussion.
0: Oh, of course. I, I definitely want to go deep on the time-restricted feeding part because I guess how do you use the biological day to time your meals and perform optimally? I'd love to go a little bit deeper on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with all of that said,
1: there are various research groups around the world who have historically looked at breakfast skipping, and And what we see in cross-sectional research in which scientists just ask people to report when they're eating, people who skip breakfast tend to have worse health outcomes. But the issue is that they also tend to have worse health behaviours. So drawing the conclusion that skipping breakfast leads to worse health outcomes is perhaps misguided. Mm -hmm. And so based on that, there have been some very nicely controlled studies of breakfast skipping that have been done in recent years. And two of those have been done by researchers at the University of Bath. So... In the first of these studies, they looked at lean young adults and what they did was they split them into two groups. So in one group, the people were asked to consume no calories before midday. That was the breakfast skipping group. And in the other condition, they were asked to consume at least 700 calories by 11am. And both conditions lasted six weeks and then they followed them up over time. And what they found was that there were no differences in how they slept in the health of their cardiovascular systems and their metabolic health. But what they did find was that people who skipped breakfast had greater blood sugar variability in the afternoon, which over time you would expect to associate with an increased risk of diabetes. So that's some tentative evidence that breakfast skipping might not be smart. But bear in mind that this is a form of time-restricted eating, right? Because they're skipping Mm -hmm. breakfast And for that reason, their caloric period is longer than it otherwise would be. And then a couple of years later, the same researchers repeated exactly the same study design in obese people. And they again found few differences. So the skippers, they burn slightly fewer calories in the morning. They didn't burn fewer over the course of the day. And the only difference was that insulin sensitivity, which is again a determinant of diabetes risk in the long term, was worse in the skippers. So at this point, you might start thinking, well, maybe time-restricted eating is misguided. But we were speaking earlier about this concept of the biological daytime. They're skipping breakfast, then they're loading many of their calories later in the biological day. And what's happened recently is there are some researchers, particularly researchers at Pennington Biomedical Research Center, who have started to look at early time-restricted eating. And in broad strokes, what they found is that early time-restricted eating seems to be very good for cardiometabolic health. So the first of these studies was done last year, and they looked at overweight and obese men who have pre-diabetes. So these people haven't surpassed the clinical threshold at which they would be diagnosable with type 2 diabetes, but they are at substantially higher risk of developing that disease. And they had... All adults go, go through two conditions. So in one condition, they spread out their three meals over 12 hours each day, which is still a form of time-restricted eating, for five weeks. And in the other condition, they had exactly the same diets, but they were consumed within a six-hour period each day, but finished by 3 p.m. And what they found is that the early time-restricted eating condition led to better insulin sensitivity, lower measures of oxidative stress, which... Associates with an early aging phenotype. So people tend to age faster when they experience higher oxidative stress. So that's a good thing. That's a good effect of early time-restricted eating. But people also had better appetite regulation. And they had a very substantial drop in their morning blood pressure. Which is all very encouraging. And then just this year, they published two more studies. And they've used much shorter interventions this time in overweight adults and what they found is early time-restricted eating tends to improve glucose levels over or blood sugar levels over the 24-hour day it also changes the fats in the bloodstream a little bit perhaps the expression of some genes which if anything seem to be beneficial in terms of what you would hypothesize the change in gene expression would lead to over time And then also they've again found that this early time-restricted eating improves appetite and it seems to increase fat oxidation, which over time you might think would lead to greater loss of body fat. And there is some evidence not looking at early time-restricted eating, but looking at distributing calories earlier in the day, so having a larger breakfast and a smaller dinner, showing that if you do that over a period of time, then you're likely to experience better changes in body composition. So if you're on a fat loss diet and you consume a larger breakfast, then it's likely that you'll lose more fat than if you consume a larger dinner, for example.
0: Okay. There's a a lot to break down here and I would love to just kind of double click on a few of the things that you said. So coming back to just this idea of skipping breakfast and sort of what a lot of the fasting world is calling sixteen eight. Mm. It appears based on all of these studied studies outlined that if I'm going to skip a meal, dinner's probably the better one. Is mm. that right?
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that based on everything that's been published so far.
0: Okay. Now, what if, I mean, a lot of the argument or at least my experience with uh, skipping breakfast has been sort of the... Increase in focus, the increased focus benefit. Mm. If, I mean, if I start eating early in the morning and don't have that, you know, maybe the food kind of takes that away. Is there any way to sort of supplement or not supplement? That's the wrong word. Is there any way to sort of regain that focus other than just training it through some other means?
1: It's a very good question. And there are certainly influences of nutrition, on cognitive function acutely. So you can focus on making your breakfast as cognition-friendly as possible to various compounds in foods that tend to lead to better brain function in the short term. As examples of that, there are phytochemicals in blueberries that have been shown to have positive effects on cognition and the vascular system in the brain. And I think... There are also, of course, nootropics that people speak about now and caffeine will have an effect on alertness and so on. But the quality of the diet in general is important. And for me, as somebody who's very interested in sleep, I I generally try to nudge people towards reducing their caffeine intakes and their stimulant intakes, if anything. So certain foods do have these beneficial effects on cognition. And if you're going to consume breakfast, then avoiding heavily processed foods is going to minimize the likelihood that consuming breakfast is going to negatively affect your attention and your executive function. So your ability to plan and monitor your different tasks. But with that said, I completely understand what you're speaking about. And I experience the same thing. If I skip breakfast and I feel cognitively sharp in the morning, and this really depends what you're optimizing for. So if you're optimizing for metabolic health then i agree that skipping dinner is definitely the way to go if you are optimizing for performance at work then you might find that fasting is beneficial what i will say is that to my knowledge there's very little science showing that that type of dietary approach so maybe having an eight hour caloric period or feeding window later in the day has positive effects on cognition the next question is whether it's possible to strike some sort of middle ground between the two. So let's say that you you, you want to have the beneficial effects of skipping dinner or consuming fewer calories late in your day, but you also want to have the beneficial effects of skipping breakfast on your cognition. Well, in that case, one strategy, which is untested to my knowledge, would be to make the first meal of the day relatively small, and the final meal of the day, very small, and then concentrate many of your calories around the middle of the day. And that might make sense, especially if your goal is optimizing your body composition. So if, for example, you want to lose fat, or if you want to gain muscle, or if you're trying to do both at the same time, then how you distribute your protein intake, for example, is going to be an important determinant of changes in your fat-free mass. And for that reason, one approach that you could take would be to have a high protein, relatively small breakfast, which isn't going to be the sort of big heavy meal that might make you feel sluggish or blunt mentally for a period of time afterwards, then having a a relatively large lunch. And then you could still have a dinner, but just make it comparatively small. So there are all these different permutations that you can play with, but I think that my suggestion would be if you find that having a big breakfast does interfere with your cognitive function, then just try having a smaller one. Make it high in fiber. Make it high in protein. That's going to abate your appetite, but also it's probably not going to substantially affect some of the determinants that affect your cognition and your focus. And then have a big lunch and do some physical activity around that time. And in the evening, you can consume a a relatively small meal or you can shift that meal a little bit earlier if that's possible so with all of these studies it's important to understand that scientists are often trying to maximize the contrast between the two different interventions so the interventions are often quite extreme so maybe somebody finishes dinner at 2 p.m in one of these studies which seems not practical for many people in the real world well yeah. does that that's still my have next in-
0: question by the way <laughs>
1: yeah. so does that still have implications for people i think it absolutely does question really is a can you have some days where you do finish your dinner early probably and is that likely to have beneficial effects on metabolic health based on preclinical studies so studies of other animals non-human animals that seems to be the case there's been some work by Sachin Panda looking at what happens if mice use time restricted feeding on 5 days each week as opposed to all 7 days So in that way, it mimics the working week. So imagine a situation where you can use time-restricted eating from Monday to Friday, and then on the weekend, you loosen up a bit. What he found is that when mice have that type of periodic time-restricted feeding, they experience the lion's share of the benefits of doing time-restricted feeding every day. So using this intermittently might well be a good thing. And then otherwise, you can still apply these findings by having dinner, but just making the dinner smaller. So maybe you want to be social and you want to hang out with your friends in the evening. You want to go out and have a good time, but you just, you just don't have to follow suit and have a giant meal in the evening. You can just have a smaller meal. And, and there is evidence showing that that is beneficial for first sleep. There's really nice work published last year looking at heart rate variability, which is broadly an indication of how much duress somebody is under And what they found is that when people consume smaller dinners, but consume the same number of calories over the entire day, they have higher heart rate variability at night, which should lead to or should associate with more restorative sleep. But then also there's been some work by some researchers led by Danielle Yakubovics a few years ago. And what they did was they looked at a 12-week intervention in overweight and obese women, and they split them into two groups half, one of the group one of the groups or half the people consumed half of their calories at breakfast so lots early in the day and the other consumed half of them at dinner and they found that those that consumed half of them at breakfast lost more than twice as much body weight more than twice as many inches off their waists and had better improvements in blood sugar and blood fats too so i think take, take the research with a pinch of salt think about how you can try and capitalize on some of the findings within your own life, but you needn't try and mimic the interventions that are used. And certainly don't stress about small deviations from what you're trying to do now and then. All you should be trying to focus on is is slowly getting better over time and making changes that you feel are sustainable. Have fun with it, you know, try one thing, give it a go for a bit, ingrain it as a habit, And then if it works, then brilliant. Try something else too, which you think is likely to amplify that effect. If it doesn't work, then it was a fun experiment and move on to the next one.
0: Wow. So you just covered a lot of my, one of my follow-up questions, which was definitely the social aspect of just whether or not uh, the benefits of being social, going out for dinner in places like Argentina and Spain, where they eat quite late outweigh, Sort of the benefits of eating smaller meals. I, I don't yeah. think that study has been done yet, but might no, be it a very be hard
1: in. thing to study because the the quality of the social interaction is going to be a massive determinant. <laughs> rather, <laughs> positively, yeah. if you go out for you dinner out with, with like, people that you despise, then it's probably not going to be a good thing. <laughs>
0: uh, okay, so a couple of ways to break this down, just for people, make sure that we're one hundred percent clear here. Mm. Uh, if I were to say the old adage, you know, eat like a king at breakfast, eat like a queen at lunch, and then a pauper at dinner. Would Mm -hmm. that broadly apply towards how to follow loosely this time restricted feeding concept or some of these studies?
1: Yeah, it, it absolutely would. So I think that's great advice for most people with a couple of caveats. So one would be, as I mentioned earlier, certain macronutrients, so protein specifically, You probably do want to distribute relatively evenly during the day. The evidence on this is somewhat mixed, but if you are interested in optimizing your body composition, so looking better naked, then you you do want to focus on getting a certain amount of protein on a per meal basis, which is probably something to the tune of 0.4 grams per kilogram of body mass. It's around that. So with that said, yes, that makes sense. The exceptions would be certain populations so one would be athletes with very high energy expenditures if you are a tour de France cyclist you shouldn't be too fussed about having a small dinner and a big breakfast you're going to be cranking through an awful lot of energy and you should be pretty much eating round the clock to try and support your training load so that would be one group another would be pregnant women and nursing mothers just because it's prudent to not recommend that those people try time-restricted eating until it's been studied more formally. More formally, I don't see any reason why it would be unhealthy. I suspect if anything that done correctly, it would probably actually be healthy. But that's something to consider too. And then another one might be people with eating disorders. So people who are already hyper-focused on their diets. Maybe they have orthorexia and they're unhealthily obsessed with consuming a healthy diet if that's the case then trying to do one more thing with their diet is probably not something that they should be concerned about they should just be trying to regain a healthy attitude with what they eat and what they drink but in broad strokes yes I completely agree that given that the majority of people in developed countries consume a relatively small breakfast the moderate-sized lunch and a big dinner, inverting that such that they have a very big breakfast, moderate-sized lunch, and a small dinner, is surely a good thing. The one more, the the one more caveat that I'll add is just that if somebody does exercise in the afternoon, for example, then distributing a considerable portion of energy intake around the exercise bout is likely not a bad thing by any means because the exercise will have all sorts of beneficial effects on how the different nutrients are metabolized subsequently such that they're more likely to be partitioned towards fat-free mass and less likely to be stored as unsightly
0: fat mass. Okay, if I may, just because I have you here and I want to guinea pig myself, <laughs> um, if I work out in the middle of the day, let's say rather than Going to lunch and previously I did skip breakfast but based on this conversation I may want to change things a little bit. If I go out and work work out in the middle of the day is sort of a, a right ish and we're going to say ish because of course we can't be precise um, mm. necessarily here is a right-ish way for me to look at this is to have uh, my 0.4 grams per kilograms of protein in the morning uh, with higher fiber, maybe something like a smoothie, then have my biggest meal right after that workout. And then my last meal be a little bit smaller, but still hitting that 0. 0.4 grams per kilo. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, I think if you're going with a three meal a day approach, then that would be a perfectly smart way to go about it. And the point mm-hmm. four grams per kilogram is just a heuristic. Mm-hmm. And if you're consuming fewer meals then you might want to consume slightly more protein relative to your body mass at each of those meals but I suspect that that would be a good strategy for you given your goals obviously you want to be sharp and early in the day is a really important time of day when it comes to work because you're going through those decisive points at which whatever you do is likely to have a strong effect on your subsequent actions so If you open up your laptop in the morning and the first thing that you do is go to social media, then maybe you end up wasting the next 90 minutes. But if you open your laptop in the morning, the first thing that you do is go to some sort of note-taking app like Workflowy. Or if it is going to start work on some sort of very cognitively demanding task, some sort of deep work, then that's likely going to have a much more positive effect on your ability to get things done that day. So if that's your approach, then that makes sense to me. The one thing that I'll add also is that there's a dip in wakefulness around lunchtime. So most people experience this sort of post-lunch slump. Mm -hmm. It's what some people call it. And people often think that that is the result of lunch. If you consume certain foods, then maybe sometimes that's the case. So glucose, for example, inhibits activity in orexin neurons in the brain, which promote wakefulness. But... With that said, that nadir in wakefulness around that time of day, maybe 1pm, is largely driven by the circadian system. So if your focus is really on getting work done and you experience that type of slump and you want to plug in exercise at that time of day, then that's a really smart strategy, I think. But also recognize that that dip in wakefulness at that time of day, it does have an evolutionary basis. And current thinking is that it's probably because that time of day is the hottest time of day. So it's no coincidence that people take siestas in hot countries. And the function of that different wakefulness is to have people go and take a nap so that they stay out of damaging UV rays from sunlight. They're escaping from sunlight. And interestingly, if you look at some pre-industrial people, what you find is that during the hotter months of the year, they move to a biphasic sleep pattern where they have this lunchtime nap. And in the cooler months of the year, they have a monophasic one where they just sleep in one consolidated overnight bout. So sorry, that was a very long answer. But basically, Boomer, I think that that would probably be a a good strategy for
0: you. That's awesome. One of the trends, and I know you're in some of these groups and speak in some of these circles as well, One of the things that we see is this one meal a day concept. Mm. Can we, you and I had a fascinating conversation on this, and I would love to open this can of worms with you right (laughs) now. One meal a day, is it possible, sustainable over the long term? I I do have a question on the amount of protein that we're able to process at any given time. But Mm. uh, in your opinion.
1: Yeah, well, I guess that you ask the people who are trying that. (laughs) Some people seem to be able to make it work for them. Do Mm -hmm. those people have families? And does that approach interfere with their social life in some way? Maybe. So it really depends what your values are. And you can try it, of course. But in terms of metabolic health, I don't see any evidence that that's the way to go. It hasn't been comprehensively studied. There were a couple of studies published around 2007, 2008, that looked at this one meal a day pattern. And it was Mark Matson who did that work. And they didn't really find any beneficial effects of it. But with that said, what we don't have is research looking at whether the timing of that one meal a day is important. And I suspect it would be important. So one meal a day at brunch is, in my mind, likely better than one meal a day in the evening. And we haven't really spoken about mechanisms, but there are all sorts of reasons to think that that's likely the case. So, for example, if you look at how well your body clears blood sugar, that's higher in the biological morning than the biological evening. If you look at the number of calories that people burn to break down food, which is, the thermic effect of feeding or diet-induced thermogenesis, then that's higher in the morning than the evening, which means that if repeated over time, you'd expect that to lead to a negative energy balance and possibly fat loss. And our digestive systems, frankly, seem to work better at that time too. So they, they push food through them faster and there are changes in the composition of the flora in our guts, which perhaps have implications for the best time at which to eat too. And if you look at insulin sensitivity, then various different cells, such as adipocytes or fat cells, seem to be more insulin sensitive around midday. So all of that leads me to suspect that if you're going to try this OMAD or one meal a day or warrior diet approach, then the best time would be relatively early. And having one meal, which would be very large, late in the day, in my mind, would likely interfere with sleep because, as I mentioned there... You burn a substantial number of calories just breaking down food. And if it's all concentrated in one meal, then that is significant. And that will lead to a substantial increase in body temperature. Or the, what would otherwise be a rise in body temperature would offset a decline in body temperature that would otherwise occur late in the day. And that is important to healthy sleep. So body temperature has a peak during the biological night time. And if you eat too late in the day, then it's likely that it will take you later to reach that peak or the amplitude of the core body temperature rhythm will be smaller, which will probably interfere with your sleep. So one more thing to pick up on is your comment about protein. And I I think it's a bit of a myth that you can only process, I'm using the word process loosely, a certain amount of protein at a given sitting. And I know that if if you asked protein researchers like Stu Phillips or Don Lehman or somebody like that about that, then they would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's not like you poop out your steak as it went in. You you still break Mm -hmm. it down. But the, the question is whether having one very large bolus of protein as per that one meal a day approach is optimal in terms of skeletal muscle protein balance. And all the data suggest that that's not the case. Although again, this hasn't really been studied formally, but going by what we know about the dynamics of protein metabolism, that seems not to be the case because if you consume a certain amount of protein and provided that protein contains a certain quantity of an amino acid named leucine specifically, it's one of the branch chain amino acids, then you will maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis and then for a period of time after that, if you keep consuming more protein, you won't have any additional effect on muscle protein synthesis. So it, it's having negligible effects on your ability to gain muscle. But then what you find is that after a few hours, that increase in protein synthesis drops off and eventually muscle protein balance starts to become negative. And if that is sustained as per prolonged fast, then you start losing muscle mass. So in this one meal a day approach, You'll get this big spike in muscle protein synthesis after the meal, and you'll also see a dramatic reduction in muscle protein breakdown after the meal too, because you've got all this extra protein floating about. But you then have to wait another 23 and a half hours before you can maximally stimulate muscle protein again, muscle protein synthesis again. And a better way to go about that would be to more evenly distribute your protein intake as we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm.
0: How can we use this to combat um, another conversation that you and I had was around jet lag? How can Mm. you use, I guess, time-restricted feeding, fasting, whatever we want to call it, to um, potentially accelerate recovery from jet lag? All right. So you guys are probably wondering, what are the brands of blue light blockers that I recommend? Well, one of them is the sponsor for today's podcast and they are blue blocks. I've had the CEO, Andy Mant, on the show before where we got into a really deep dive on blue light. And you know that if you get any amount of blue light in your glasses, no matter if it's 3%, 10%, whatever, it does disrupt melatonin production. And so Andy has created blue light blockers that hold up to the highest standards. And in fact, and I'll link to it in the show notes, you can see when he's tested it versus other brands that they always come out on top. And so quality is a thing I appreciate and is what exactly I recommend for all of our clients. But if you head over to blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and plug in the code DS15, you're gonna get 15% off. And now on with the
1: show. It's a really good question, and it's not a question that has been comprehensively studied yet. There have been some studies of non human animals looking at whether shifting the timing of food intake can accelerate the re entrainment or the resynchronization of the circadian system to changes in the light dark cycle. And based on that research, it does seem that well-timed food intake might be able to accomplish that. But as I mentioned earlier, the light-dark cycle is the main time cue for the master clock in the brain. And when you go to a new country, it's therefore your patterns of light and dark that you should attend to most closely in order to get over jet lag most quickly. And just on that note, for those interested or frequent flyers, go to the website jetlagrooster.com. It's really useful. You just plug in your origin and your destination and whether you want to start to shift your body clock in advance, and they'll give you very accurate, as far as I can tell, I've done some back-of-the-napkin calculations, recommendations regarding the best times at which to expose yourself to light and to avoid light, and if you want to take melatonin to get over jet lag faster, the best times at which to take that too. So with that said, what you find during jet lag is that often people experience gastrointestinal distress when they reach the new time zone because their GI systems, their digestive systems, are basically still timed to their original time zone. So they're now consuming food during the biological nighttime and that leads them to discomfort. So the question is whether you can be very careful about how you time your diet and perhaps the foods that you eat to the composition of your diet such that you can get over jet lag faster. And my thoughts on this are not set in stone by any means, but based on my experience and my interpretation of the data, I can, I can give you some very tentative advice. And that would be first, if, if you're interested in doing longer fasts, which I think are definitely useful for many people, especially people who are very overweight to start with, jet lag is a good time to try a longer fast because plain food is generally pretty bad. I must admit, I'm a a massive, yeah, I'm a massive fan (laughs) just to be transparent. I, I, I really enjoy it, but I'm not hard to please when it comes to food, but, but but the quality of plain food is not the best to put it lightly. Mm -hmm. And, for that reason, skipping plain food, you're not really missing out on much, and you can just do a water fast during that time. And then the first day in the new time zone after you've had an overnight sleep. So if for example, Boomer, you were flying to New York, that would be I don't is that six or seven time zones for you? Seven. So that's seven time zones travelling to the west. So you've got to go to bed seven hours later and wake up seven hours later. Actually it's day. six,
0: but I mean, yeah. I understand that. Sorry. Sure. I, I, okay. I was just doing the math
1: in my head yeah so so if you've got to shift your body's clock by six hours then what you could do is you could fast on the day of your travel and then go to sleep and you that night and you'll be very tired and you'll likely wake up earlier than you would like but then on your first full day in the new time zone completely switch your meal patterns to the new time zone so have breakfast at the same clock hour as you would have had at home. So if you're having breakfast at home in Amsterdam at 8am, then have your breakfast 8am New York time. And interestingly, whereas the master clock in the brain takes a while to catch up to the new time zone, typically it's one to it can resynchronize by a one to two hour time zone difference per day. So if you travel across eight time zones, it will likely take the master clock in your brain anywhere between four and eight days to fully resynchronize to the light-dark cycle. But whereas that's the case, these peripheral clocks elsewhere, which are primarily set by food intake, seem to be set faster. So you might find that you can synchronize the clocks elsewhere in your body, so in your digestive system, for example, much more quickly than the brain. And I think that that fasting approach is likely beneficial because we didn't touch on this earlier, but whereas time-restricted eating seems to probably increase the, and this is hypothetical, increase the amplitude of circadian rhythms in peripheral clocks or diurnal rhythms in peripheral clocks. So if you look at the expression of genes, for example, then we might expect time-restricted eating to make more genes have this 24-hour profile of high gene expression and then low gene expression than a more distributed diet. Fasting, unlike time-restricted eating, tends to flatten those rhythms. So that might actually be a good thing in jet lag because you're flattening your rhythm and all of a sudden, first day in the new time zone, you're giving it the strong food stimulus and that's gonna have this big effect on the amplitude of the rhythm and it's gonna hopefully act as a time cue that then sets it to the new day. So that's one approach, fast during the flight and then first day after an overnight sleep in the new time zone, shift your meal patterns to the new time zone. The other strategy that to me makes sense is to think about the times of day that coincide with both of the time zones. So if you're moving from Amsterdam to New York and you've got to cross six time zones, then your dinner in Amsterdam is breakfast in New York. So that's actually an appropriate time for food in both time zones. So one strategy would be to concentrate almost all or perhaps all of your calories so this might be a time for one meal a day, actually, at that time of day. So at evening time in Amsterdam or morning time in New York. And then the first day after that, you could then shift fully to the New York eating pattern. So that that to me makes sense. And during the fast, just to add one more thing, during jet lag, you're likely to get dehydrated, of course. So you'd still want to be careful about drinking enough water. And you might just think about strategies that you can use to make that fast easier and that can be things like chewing gum technically chewing gum will expose you to a couple of calories but it's negligible and and if it helps you then that's ideal and also if you just have very small amounts of food then that's better than having large amounts of food probably in that situation so again this is another question of optimal versus practical And perhaps if you start trying the strategy, maybe initially you start by just consuming very small meals during the transition. But then as you get used to going long periods of time without food, you can move to a full fast. And if you're going to go the former and try small amounts of food distributed during that intercontinental travel, then you might use something like A whey protein drink because that's likely to have beneficial effects on body composition and also appetite regulation too of course provided that you're not intolerant to dairy but that that would probably be a good choice for most people
0: awesome greg you've taught me a lot once again you continue to blow my mind but uh at this point i want to transition into our final four questions because Uh, One, I know you have quite a bit to do today, but also two, I want to get your thoughts on some rapid fire questions that I ask everybody. The first one is, how do you unwind? With difficulty in London. (laughs) (laughs) How do I
1: unwind? I unwind by escaping the city. I've realized that I need to escape the city to maintain my sanity, if I've ever had sanity, every two weeks or so. And mm-hmm. if that's not possible, then parks are my best bet, probably. So generally try and explore, explore some London parks, which is lovely at this time of year, actually. And there are some parks where you can temporarily feel like you have escaped a bit. So I went to Battersea Park, actually, on Monday this week, which is nice because they've got big trees there, so you can't see all of the skyscrapers. And then otherwise, it would be seeing friends, reading and i suppose one more thing that i'll mention is just that i I get pretty tightly wound sometimes i don't think that people realize it necessarily i'm normally quite good at keeping a lid on it but i certainly do experience stress and when that's the case i tend to double up on my meditation practice and i'm Mm -hmm. also more vigilant about my consumption of stimulants i'm by no means a caffeine junkie anyway i probably consume caffeine two days a week on average But during those times, I'll often just cut it entirely and and really focus on optimizing my sleep.
0: Which meditation app do you use or do you use one? I do, yeah. I'm like many people. I use
1: Waking Up, which I really like Sam Harris's app. I just think that his approach makes a lot of sense. I find the lessons that accompany the meditations very useful, sometimes inspirational. I really like many of his ideas I know that when when we were in Latvia we were speaking about this actually the fact that his podcast the reason
0: why I brought it up is because you introduced me to it and it's uh, it's a fantastic app
1: Oh, do you You use it you
0: yeah I do oh that's great so
1: I know that we we were speaking about Sam Harris I just think that although he gets a lot of pushback from many people he he argues in favor of his ideas very coherently and I also think that he's An exceptionally bright guy perhaps the brightest guy in podcasting as i've said to you before so don't agree with all of his ideas by any means but i i do find many of his conversations insightful and feel exactly the same way about his app before that i used some tapes that were recorded by mark williams which are available Mm -hmm. on youtube and you can just get like a youtube to mp3 converter to download those if you want to try those. And the accompanying book's good too. I think it's just called Mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And it's by Mark Williams and one other person whose name escapes me. I apologize that person. But that's that's a good introductory text. And also I think that people shouldn't always rely on guided meditations. I think that there's something to be said for just being able to sit with the breath and perhaps do a body scan. And of course, all you're doing when you meditate is paying attention and doing so in a non-judgmental way. So it sounds silly to people who don't have a meditation practice, but you can be meditating while doing anything. And I think that the point should be for people to try and break down the barrier between their meditative practices and the rest of their lives, such that they just become a little bit more mindful in their daily actions and thereby bring a better version of themselves to the
0: world. Awesome, awesome. And I had read Sam Harris before, but I never explored the app. And thanks to you, I've been using it pretty regularly since we spoke in Latvia. Next question. Uh, What is your top trick for improving your focus?
1: This is just, it's just such a cliched answer. It feels like such an obvious thing for me to say, but since I studied sleep so my my PhD was in sleep since I started studying sleep I've become more aware of my sleep and I think that if I consider my daily performance nothing has as strong an effect on my day-to-day variation in performance as my sleep and actually it's ironic that the last two nights I've had terrible sleep so (laughs) definitely not feeling quite as sharp as normal today But I had a couple of cups of green tea earlier, so hopefully that carries me through and I make some sense in this conversation. But just to give some background on that, the longer that somebody's been awake, the worse their attention will be. And there is very large variability between people in the extent to which sleep loss affects them. So about a third of people seem to be minimally affected, the lucky third. And about Mm -hmm. a third are very vulnerable, such that even small amounts of sleep loss will basically crater their attention. And of course, the effect of sleep loss does de- depend on the particular cognitive domain that you test. So that could be executive function, it could be whatever it might be. And we, we do know something about why this is the case now. Um, basically, there are these midline brain structures called the default mode network, and they mm-hmm. become active shortly before our minds start to wander. So when we're task negative, we're not focusing on anything in particular. Maybe we're just ruminating and thinking about ourselves, just daydreaming. A lot of that seems to be driven by activity in this network. And in order to accomplish a goal, that network needs to be suppressed. And what should happen is there's this reciprocal switch between another network, which is called the frontoparietal attention network and the default mode network. And this attention network is key to focusing and it's also important to working or short-term memory. So when somebody is sleep replete, there's this nice inhibition between the two. So you can switch seamlessly between focusing on something and letting your mind wander and that's a very healthy pattern and i think that it is actually important to let the mind wander at times which is sometimes difficult in today's society but after we lose sleep this reciprocal inhibition between the two loses stability and then all of a sudden the default mode network starts intruding when we're trying to stay on task and oh wait a second what about that thing that i've got to do late oh no wait i'm supposed to be working So we're constantly going between those transitions and we're eminently distractible after we lose sleep. So with that said, my top trick for improving focus would be to identify whatever it is that you can do and sustain that's likely to improve your sleep. And the reasons that different people struggle with sleep are, of course, many fold. So what works for one person won't be a suitable target to intervene for another person but the broad concepts of sleep hygiene do apply to everybody so
0: sleep is absolutely king i think for me amazing what book has significantly impacted your life and how you show up to perform in it so i'm not actually
1: going to mention a book and I'm going to pick something which has just been brought to my attention relatively recently. Boomer, I'm sure that you know Cal Newport. You've probably read
0: his books of you. Yeah, I've read a few of them.
1: Yeah, so I, I haven't. But I've read his blog now and then. And I know that he, he's published a book recently called Digital Minimalism. And he came up with this idea of doing a digital declutter which is basically going 30 days and trying to start your relationship with digital devices and media and taking a blank slate approach to it. So what is the minimum amount that you need to use those digital devices in order to just get by in your life? So maybe you need to use your phone to make phone calls, to pick up your kids, communicate with your daughter after school whatever it might be that's fine so you're you're absolutely not going to do away with your phone in that case but maybe on your phone you've got facebook messenger and you've got instagram and you've got twitter and you've got some news sites and you've got some sort of financial stock market app well do those just distract you? you do you need to check in with those over the next 30 days with doing so meaningfully negatively affect your life? Probably not. So the idea is just that you're trying to cut back on use of those devices to the greatest degree possible. And I'm going through that process at the moment, and I found it very beneficial so far. So while I haven't read the book, I would say go and check out Cal Newport's work. And I think that especially for your audience, who who are many of whom I think are focused on performing better at work, that's likely going to be beneficial, I suspect that many of them already know about Cal Newport too. Otherwise, the, the book that I would suggest that people read, and it's not related to performance in daily life directly, is a book called Doing Good Better by William McCaskill. And that's just about how you can do the most good in your life. And it takes a rational, economic approach to doing so. So if, for example, you earn lots of money and you can donate some small proportion of that money to effective charities then which charities are most effective and that's a really effective way of helping lots of people to a large degree and if if you think about the individuals who have had the greatest positive effect on mankind I think that the likes of Bill Gates are up there and how has he done so he's earned loads of money he's given a certain amount of his money to very effective charities and more power to him for it I, I really admire that so I think it's worth checking out that. And if you don't read the book, then I look up Will McCaskill's work. There are some good talks by him online. And he's another person I I really look up to, even though he's about the same age as us, Boomer. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yet again, you've caused me to ring up more books on my Amazon account. So thank you for that. Greg, where can people find out more about you?
1: So (laughs) true to the digital declutter approach, I don't actually use social media that much, but I do have an Instagram account and a Twitter account too, both of which are at GDM, so that's M for Maxwell, Potter. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. And I have a ResearchGate account, which I haven't updated recently, where some of my academic work is located. But if you do reach out to me via social media, then I I will get back to you in due course it just might not be immediately and if that's the case then forgive me but i i will be back in touch at some point and then otherwise i i do have some speaking gigs coming up i'm hoping to see you at one or two of them boomer but i'm speaking at the biohacker summit in helsinki in november i might be speaking at a biohacker event in mexico in october i'm speaking at a biohacker event in russia in september and at the London Health Optimization Summit in September as well. So if anybody, and it's unlikely that anybody is going to any of those events, but does go to one of those events, then please stop by and say hi. It'd be lovely to meet you.
0: Awesome. And I'm sure I'll see you at least, well, more than one of those, at least London and Helsinki. But Dr. Potter, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure. And just looking at my, my notes right now, I've got more than a couple of pages of handwritten things to do. So thank you for everything. Yeah, always a pleasure, mate. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Greg. To all the superhumans listening to this, have an absolutely epic day. So Greg is one of those people whose opinion matters to me a lot. And I love this episode because we got a chance to talk about so many different things from one meal a day, time-restricted feeding, to biological rhythms, and he is so knowledgeable on a variety of subjects. As a reminder, the show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com Greg. It was an amazing episode. If you enjoyed it, share it with a friend. And if you really enjoyed it, head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. All the ratings help, guys. Thank you, superhumans, for listening and have an absolutely epic day.